Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hello there, history friends. Normally, I just start these episodes straight away if you're a patron, or I say hello there and talk about Patreon or advertising or some other stuff if you are just a regular listener. Today, though, I want to talk about something that everyone, no matter what listener or patron you are, will enjoy. And it's something to be very, very excited about indeed. Those of you who follow my life and the exploits of history podcasting or just podcasting in general might be aware that back in November, myself and several of my Agora buddies met up for what was called the Sound Education Podcast Conference in Harvard University. It was really fun and it was pretty well received and quite successful and we all had a great time doing it. So much so that we've decided, or most of us have decided, to get together and try it out again. Now I should specify beforehand that unfortunately yours truly is not going to be able to take part this time round. Mostly because, well, it's in New York and that's far away and expensive to get to etc etc and I've already committed myself to previous holidays and excuses to spend money in other areas. However, if you were disappointed that I won't be there, you should make sure to check out the list of people who will be there, because let's just say there's more than enough reasons to go to what we're calling the Intelligent Speech Conference, sponsored by FlickApp.com, which I will talk about another time, because I've got more than enough information to drop on you here. So first and foremost... What is happening? And where is it happening? And when is it happening? Well, to answer all those questions, on Saturday the 29th of June from 11am to 7pm in the Norwood Club in Chelsea, New York, we're having what's being called an Agora Day, where several conference rooms will be filled with Agora people and non-Agora people talking about podcasting and meeting you hopefully in person if you want to come and say hi. That again, the 29th of June at 11am to 7pm in the Norwood Club, Chelsea. But who's going to be there? Well, the biggest name we have managed to get by far is Mike Duncan. That's right, Mike Duncan of History of Roman Revolutions fame. So if you want to see him in person, if you want to wave at him awkwardly from across the room, or even more awkwardly go up to him and say hi, this is probably the best opportunity you're ever going to have. If you've met him before, come and meet him again. He's a great guy. Otherwise, we've also got David Crowther from the History of England, 
and Kevin Stroud from the History of English podcast. Essentially, what you've got here is the biggest hitters in history podcasting, as well as a whole range of other history podcasters and people who are members of the Agora Podcast Network, such as Aziz from the History of Westeros podcast, just a one example. The biggest hitters, as I said, other than perhaps Dan Carden, to ever grace a microphone of a history podcast. As I said, I won't be there, but these people will be, and that is more than enough reason to check it out. Go to intelligentspeechconference.com, follow the link in the description below, or if you've any more questions, have a listen to this very wonderful promo put together by our own Benjamin Jacobs from the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast to find out more information. After this promo plays, we'll be straight into the episode. The promo itself is about three minutes long, but it shall answer any questions you may have about this very, very exciting step towards the further promotion of wonderful podcasts. Enjoy, and I'll see you afterwards. And that is why tableware was so important for the founding of the country. Oh, that is fascinating. I can't believe you learned that from a podcast. The world really needs more outlets for this sort of infotainment. Everybody stop what you're doing and listen! What? What? This is not a drill. You asked for more outlets for high-quality infotainment, and you're going to get more than you can handle. The Agora Podcast Network is bringing together names like Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud to the same place at the same time at a convention devoted to educational podcast content. No No way. way! Way. On June 29th, from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., Agora is bringing you the Intelligent Speech Conference at the Norwood Club, located at 241 West 14th Street, New York, New York. Will it just be those three? No! In addition to Mike Duncan of the History of Rome and Revolutions, David Crowther of the History of England, and Kevin Stroud of the History of English, many of your favorite Agora Podcast Network hosts will be there, including Royfield Brown of Mid-Atlantic, Xander, and Eric Fogg of Reconsider. Steve Guerra of the History of the Papacy podcast. Uh, Cloud Myron Guzer of the Cannonball podcast. Aziz Alduri of the History of Westeros. Raven of the Tiny Vampires podcast. And Benjamin Jacobs of Wittenberg to Westphalia. Wow, those are all amazingly talented individuals. Really talented individuals. Some of them are amazingly talented even more than others. But surely <laughs> there are too many for one day. Have you never been to a convention before? There'll be three conference rooms featuring panels, talks, and laser tag. Well, okay, there won't be any laser tag, but definitely a full day of panels and talks from a dozen of the best podcasters on the planet. Hmm, that does sound good, but what if I get hungry? Relax. The $175 tickets will include dinner with your favorite podcasters, and the $125 tickets will include access to the Norwood Club for the day. Wow, I'm sold, but how do I get there? The Norwood Club is conveniently located near a variety of exciting subway stops. If you want to drive your car in Manhattan for some reason, you can do that too, but parking is expensive. I recommend the train. What an amazing idea, and some fine urban planning knowledge. But does this Manhattan have anything to do other than the convention? Are you kidding? Oh, you're not. You're not kidding. Okay. Um, well, Manhattan is one of the most exciting places on the planet, and the Norwood Club is located on the borders of Greenwich Village, one of the key cultural destinations in the city. Only a few long, long blocks from the High Line, and a short subway ride from dozens of museums, restaurants, and shopping. Make it a weekend trip and have an amazing time. Wow! I'm booking my hotel now. Where can I get tickets to Agora's Intelligence Speech Conference? To go to the conference and see Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud live and in person, simply go to intelligentspeechconference.com. Awesome! Oh, awesome! Just for the record, they're both giving a thumbs up. You can't see it because it's an audio medium, but I just thought you should know because it's very impactful. But remember, Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud, together in the same place at the same time. And to learn more, you can go to intelligentspeechconference.com.
You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 65. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 65 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. Last time we looked at perhaps the most significant and infamous moment of the Paris Peace Conference, second only to the moment where the Germans actually signed on the dotted line on the 28th of June in the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles. Considering the reaction to the treaty which Ulrich von brockdorff rantzau had, and the fact that it would not be another month and a half from the moment it was presented to the Germans to the moment it was signed, I don't think it would be too much of a spoiler to note that it took some time for the Germans to be persuaded to sign. In the meantime, there was a whole lot that could and did go wrong, and the other powers involved were by no means content to sit still. Additionally, there was a somewhat awkward atmosphere thanks to the return of the Italians, who, as we learned in that Whopper episode two installments ago, never ceased to dominate the discussions of the Big Three, even when they weren't always present for such discussions. The return of Vittorio Orlando and his foreign minister, Baron Sonino, meant that the so-called Council of Four would live up to its name, yet it was clear enough that the situation remained the playground of Woodrow Wilson, George Clemenceau, and David Lloyd George. In this episode, we examine the few days which followed the moment where Germany had received her terms, and we assess the activities of the Allies in the meantime, up to the end of the 10th of May, where the Allies were made aware of an important development. During their crisis discussions on what the Italians would do next, you may recall that the Big Three were particularly concerned that Vittorio Orlando would authorise a landing at Smyrna, that divided city in formerly Turkish Anatolia, which housed a sizable Greek population. In light of these fears, the Big Three had been eager indeed to authorise the Greek premier, Venizelos, to send in a naval landing of his own, which was duly launched on the 15th of May. Thus, a new war front in the peace conference had been opened, and while the Big Three might blame Italy for their actions here, it would be fair to say that they had nobody to blame but themselves for the Greco-Turkish war which followed. Without any further ado then, I'll now take you to that terrible aftermath of the 8th of May, where everything was about to sink in amongst the German delegation, and the Big Three were becoming increasingly nervous. Would the Germans accept in the end, or would the war be back on? Nobody could say for sure, but in the meantime, the meetings of the Council of Four would continue. The meeting of the Council of Four on the 8th of May at 11am in Woodrow Wilson's Parisian home opened with a significant bit of news. There was some discussion on the subject of the meeting with the Germans on the previous day, recorded the minutes, in the course of which Monsieur Clemenceau said that he had heard on good authority that Count Brockdorf Rantzau said he would not sign the terms of peace. There could be little Allied surprise in this regard. The reception of the Germans, and the fact that many had stayed up all night, some of them drinking themselves into a stupor as they did so, told the story of what was felt to be a national and personal shame, not to mention a betrayal. Those great and noble principles which had compelled Germans to negotiate through the Americans in October and November, and ultimately to sign on the dotted line, had evidently not been fulfilled. Germany would be made to shoulder the blame, she would be financially penalised, and territory would be taken from her. To some degree, this cannot have been a surprise for brockdorff rantzaus delegation. After all, the emergence of new states in Poland, Czechoslovakia and the Baltic strongly underlined the possibility that this land would not be returned to the former German Empire, and Allied recognition of these states surely confirmed that. There was, as we noted last time, a sense among the German delegation that even with these warning signs, many Germans hoped against hope that the terms would not be harsh, or harsh as they construed them. It was also brought to the Big Three's attention this morning that the Germans wanted commissions of their own to advise them on the terms of the peace treaty, just as the Allies had had in the previous four months. brockdorff rantzaus official notice went, Having regard to the disconcerting multiplicity of the problems which are raised by this aim pursued in common, we must, as rapidly as possible, have the principal matters discussed by special expert commissions on the basis of the draft which you are submitting. 
There was a flurry of debate over how to respond to this, before Clemenceau exclaimed that, actually, this note didn't require an Allied response and could be ignored without much consequence. Wilson even found an out by claiming that one possible interpretation of the phrase discussed by special expert commissions was that if the Germans signed the treaty, they would want the assistance of the Allied and Associated Powers in carrying it out. Through this convenient act of misinterpretation, the Allies decided that they could move on, having spent fewer than 10 minutes discussing the most pivotal development in the peace conference so far. By the end of the month, these Allies would be faced with the counter-proposals of the German delegation, a whopper-sized document which was delivered on the evening of the 28th of May. Before we get to that though, we have all this other stuff to get through first, and as a palate cleanser, on the morning of the 8th of May, debate moved towards the resolving of borders of new or altered states. A convenient American-made summary of what had been done so far honed in on the outstanding issues, as well as highlight what had been accomplished. This summary noted that the United States, British and French experts had agreed in regard to Bulgaria, the Greek frontiers, the Czechoslovak frontiers, the Romanian frontiers and the Yugoslav frontiers. The question of the frontiers between Belgium and Holland had not been dealt with. In regard to the Polish frontiers, agreement had not been reached, except with regard to Germany and the frontier between Poland and the Czechs. The frontiers of Albania and of Russia were also unsettled. In short, there was still some work to do, but Lloyd George was of the view that it would be best to resolve the borders of Austria and Hungary first, for then the states which surrounded them could be better dealt with, and Lloyd George anticipated that the borders of the former Habsburg Empire would be the more contentious issue anyway. Having learned of the tumultuous conditions in the east, particularly in Budapest and in Transylvania, Wilson was anxious that the conference retained its authority to solve these problems. Once peace was made with Austria and with Hungary, and once these countries had been made separate and the treaties of peace with them had been completed, the present conference would have no further authority. This was the president's great fear, because as he understood it, to leave it to the component parts to arrange matters between themselves would cause very serious trouble. Wilson thus urged the importance of retaining the peacemaking power in the present conference. Lloyd George believed that this could all be avoided by inserting certain articles in the treaty which would bind Austria and Hungary to recognise the states around them within the boundaries arranged by the Allied and Associated Powers as a whole. Wilson said that this was all very well, but if the conference broke up having only asked the Austrians and Hungarians to respect the borders of their neighbours, how could they then make any decisions regarding their peace treaties with any authority? It was a technical question, and it might seem somewhat dull and needless to us, but it effectively meant that the current peace conference would be prolonged to deal with Austria and Bulgaria and Hungary as well, and that it would not fold up after making the German peace this became especially likely once Lloyd George opined that If my Italian colleagues would pardon me, and I do not ask them to agree or disagree in what I am about to say, the present atmosphere was not a favourable one for settling the more controversial questions. The can could be kicked down the road again because, as Lloyd George appreciated, There was great public excitement, which was partly artificial and partly genuine. The best plan would be to give time for that to subside. It was not essential that for peace between the Allied and Associated Powers and Hungary and Austria that these controversial questions should be settled. In short then, Lloyd George was kind of contradicting what Wilson wanted to achieve because to Wilson the situation was grave indeed and he declared that he was anxious to arrange that the boundaries between various states should not be left to separate agreement. The President thus proposed that it should be provided in the Treaty of Peace that Austria and Hungary respectively should recognise the states contiguous to them within boundaries which should be stated, where possible, but where they could not be stated were determined by some definite authority, for example, the League of Nations. So the League of Nations would fill any gaps that were left by this conference once the conference issued its views on the borders of Austria and Hungary and then dissolved. 
Lloyd George opposed this plan, mostly because the poor league was liable to be suffocated with intractable problems before it was even given a chance if all these difficult questions were lumped onto its to-do list, and its to-do list was long enough already. Wilson did agree about this point, and he said that the best course would be to have the Austrian and Hungarian treaties settled by the principal allied and associated governments. The important thing was that the latter should not divest themselves of their authority. Lloyd George signalled his agreement and added that Austria and Hungary were both starving and peace treaties with them ought to be concluded as soon as possible. The only part of Brockdorf Reinsdorf's speech on the previous day which had made me feel uncomfortable was the passage where he had alluded to the starvation which had occurred since the armistice had been signed. Clemenceau, never one to take the Germans at their word, said that Brockdorf Reinsdorf's statement had yet to be proved. To this, Lloyd George replied that, at any rate, there was no doubt that Austria and Hungary were starving. And Wilson then intervened to tell Clemenceau personally that, we ought not to blink facts because we were annoyed at Brockdorf Ranzo. There is no doubt people had been starved because through no one's fault it had not been possible to get the Treaty of Peace ready earlier. This was a pretty generous interpretation of the terminal series of delays and procrastinations which had preceded arriving at this moment, but Wilson was at least correct to indicate that it did nobody any favours to dwell on these delays now, and that what mattered now was a quick peace which would ease the burden on Austria and Hungary's populations and reduce the workload of the League of Nations in the future. Ukraine then briefly entered the Allied consciousness, but Wilson exclaimed, incredibly, that one difficulty was that Ukraine declared herself independent of Russia. Thus, Lloyd George confirmed Ukraine was wrapped up in the Russian question. Apparently, by this logic, Ukrainians did not qualify for self-determination. After that brief interlude, the Big Three concluded that Austria and Hungary's borders would be fixed as soon as possible by treaties, and that the Council of Foreign Ministers would tackle this cause later in the afternoon. It was decided that the same experts who had measured German reparations would do the same for Austria and Hungary, which satisfied Vittorio Orlando, for one. Lloyd George urged that The drafting committee should be asked to start work on the Austrian Treaty and on the Hungarian Treaty. But Wilson replied to this that the drafting committee were entitled to arrest after their very heavy labours in preparing the German treaty. Discussion then began on American loans and the system for arranging their repayment, and Wilson declared that Lloyd George's previous ideas about lines of credit to European states were unacceptable to him and to Congress. This moved Lloyd George to exclaim, prophetically enough, that... Unless the United States of America and Great Britain agreed on some scheme for restarting Europe, a very serious state of affairs would arise. This, indeed, proved to be tragically correct. Not only could neither side agree in the end, but both sides essentially went their own separate ways in the 1920s, with disastrous results as we know. This was essentially it for the day in the Council of Four on the 8th of May so the book was passed to the Council of Foreign Ministers. That Council of Foreign Ministers meeting convened at 4pm in Stephen Pichon's room at the Quai d'Orsay, and they set to work unwrapping the complexities of the East, specifically the border area of Transylvania, which both Romania and Hungary were laying claim to. Andre Tardieu, as a Magyar-phobe and pro-Romanian, fudged the numbers completely in favour of the Romanians eventually revealing in the course of the questioning that some 600,000 Hungarians would remain under Romanian rule, while 25,000 Romanians would remain within Hungary. The US Secretary of State, Robert Lansing, expressed the view, which, by the way, was plain to anyone with a brainstem, that This distribution did not appear very just. In every case, the decision seemed to have been given against the Hungarians. In the course of his own self-defence, Tardieu unleashed word soup, insisting that 
The whole question had been discussed with the very greatest care. The solution had been adopted unanimously and represented the best that could be done in very difficult circumstances. In some places where the committee had thought it possible for new lines of communication to be built, they had adhered more strictly to ethnographical considerations, but on the main part of the frontier, by reason of the mountainous ground, it was impossible to substitute new lines for those already existing. By reason of the way in which the Hungarians were grouped in Transylvania, it was absolutely impossible to avoid attributing large numbers of them to the future Romanian state. Following this reply from André Tardieu, Lansing gave up the quest for justice for the vanquished, saying that he appreciated the efforts of the committee to make an equitable distribution. After further consideration, Lansing withdrew his criticisms and made no objections to the recommendations of the committee. Arthur Balfour, Britain's Foreign Secretary, also stated that he raised no objection. And thus, the foundations for the swollen Romanian state, which ballooned in size from 7 million to 17 million souls after the war, and the Hungarian pain of losing virtually the entirety of their historically linked Transylvanian region, were built in this forgotten meeting. Far away from these proceedings, of course, an oblivious Bela Kuhn in Budapest was working to seize and defend what he imagined the Allies would never give to Hungary, that being a fair deal. In this prediction that the Allies would be prejudiced against Hungary and choose her neighbours' interests over her own, Bela Kuhn was correct, but it must be said that the Bolshevik puppet hardly helped his case in the subsequent invasions of his neighbours, which he authorised. In fact, Romania would actually take far more portions of Hungary because of Kuhn's actions, and Romanian soldiers would occupy Budapest for a time in August 1919, a national humiliation without equal in Hungarian memory. As with so many other incredibly significant moments though, this stab to the heart of Hungary was hidden under mounds of other administrative work which the Council of Foreign Ministers subsequently tackled. No cry was raised in Hungary's name, and the Allies moved unflinchingly to their next debate. It was Harold Nicholson who captured most effectively the incredibly blasé way in which the Allies determined the future of Austria and of Hungary, or at least the future which was to last two decades before the next war resettled matters once again. As a witness to these meetings of the Council of Foreign Ministers, Nicholson was well placed to absorb the atmosphere and sickening sense of detachment which the Allies had as they moved the futures of millions around the board. Nicholson wrote, There, in that heavily tapestried room, under the simper of Marie de' Medici, with the windows open upon the garden and the sound of water sprinkling from a fountain and from a lawn hose, the fate of the Austro-Hungarian Empire is finally settled. Hungary is partitioned by these five distinguished gentlemen, indolently, irresponsibly partitioned, while the water sprinkles on the lilac outside, while the experts wait anxiously, while Balfour in the intervals of dialects on secondary points relapses into somnolence, while Lansing draws hobgoblins upon his writing pad, while Pichon, crouching in his large chair, blinks owlishly as decision after decision is actually recorded, while Sonino is ruggedly polite, while Makino Nabowaki, inscrutable and inarticulate, observes, observes, observes. They begin with Transylvania, and after some insults flung like tennis balls between Tarju and Lansing, Hungary loses her south then Czechoslovakia, and while the flies drone in and out of the open windows, Hungary loses her north and east, then the frontier with Austria, which is maintained intact, then the Yugoslav frontier, where the committee's report is adopted without charge, then tea and macaroons. The next day, on the 9th of May, the order of the first meeting of the Council of Four was to liaise with the Supreme Economic Council, which, if you'll recall, had been tasked with resolving the economic issues of a post-war Europe, as its name suggests. Within its remit, though, was included several responsibilities, including a question of blockade, delivery of foodstuffs, and arranging payment of goods and services in the post-war countries. Germany, unsurprisingly, featured heavily in its deliberations, largely because the debate raged on over what Germany could or should pay at this point, 
and whether the blockade on her land was doing more harm than good. Remember, it wouldn't be for another two years that the final figure of reparations for Germany to pay was decided upon, and until that date, there was at least some danger that the Allies might get ahead of themselves with that figure, or that Germany would venture down a road of chronic financial collapse and contaminate its neighbours. Lord Robert Cecil, better known for his work with the League of Nations, and last seen in our narrative, reluctantly opposing Japan's racial equality proposal in mid-April, took to the floor of the Council of Four here. He performed a speech which effectively detailed the problems Europe faced, thus informing the Allies where their knowledge was likely lacking. As before, his speech, recorded by the minutes, has been changed for our benefit into the first person, and went as follows. The most important part of the problem was to get Europe to work again. A great proportion of the population were out of work in most countries in Europe. It was useless merely to provide food. In fact, the danger to social order was likely to become worse and not better if people were merely fed. It was essential that raw materials should be made available. Poland might be taken as a typical case. Her great textile industry, on which Lodz, for instance, was absolutely dependent, was entirely stopped for want of cotton and wool although her factories and their machinery were practically intact. The trouble was, simply, that she had no money to buy raw materials and no exports, a large part of which, formerly, went to Russia, to send in exchange for them. Even agriculture was affected by the absence of raw materials, as the want of proper boots and clothing for agricultural labourers reduced their capacity to work. The problem, then, was how to provide credit. Personally, I would not advise giving unlimited funds, or even limited funds uncontrolled, to the Polish government, who might spend them on military undertakings. The problem, therefore, was twofold. A. To devise means of providing money, and B. To devise means for seeing that it was used to get industry going. As far as I can see, the position was getting worse and not better. What I have said of Poland, which I had taken merely as an instance, was generally true of Germany and other countries in Europe, and the problem must be treated as a whole. Personally, I regret that there had not been a further relaxation of the blockade some time ago. The problem was largely psychological, and the continuance of the blockade, with a consequent feeling of distrust all over Europe, was a large part of the difficulty. This was a multi-layered series of problems how to find the money to fix broken economies, and how to ensure that this money was spent to fix the country rather than go conquering your neighbours. These were all questions, and the solutions were far outside the capabilities of the big three at this moment. Lifting the blockade, Cecil said, would help matters, for it would enable natural trade and relations to begin restarting. Yet, this had not been done because the British did not trust the Germans, or Europeans generally, to get back on their feet with a responsible government. Cecil urged that A public statement should at once be issued making clear what modifications in the blockade have already been made and concluding with a statement that all the rest of the blockade against Germany would be removed the moment peace was signed. Cecil was careful to ensure that any lifting of the blockade would not apply to the Bolsheviks though which for the moment of course included Hungary. Regarding the problem of accessing money or lines of credit from willing lenders, Wilson issued the following vague statement which guaranteed the establishment of, what a treat, another committee. Wilson said it was resolved that, a committee composed of two economic advisers from each of the principal allied and associated powers would be requested to submit a systematic suggestion with regard to the means of assisting the nations which are in immediate need of both food raw material, and credit. At that, the meeting adjourned for the afternoon, and in the interim, as before, the Council of Foreign Ministers picked up some of the slack. That afternoon on the 9th of May, the Council of Foreign Ministers followed the example of the Council of Four, and formed a new committee of their own, this one with responsibilities for resolving the situation in the Baltic States. They also talked for several minutes on Austria's borders, with every single one of its neighbours, with excruciating detail on specific border towns and contentious population transfers. The pain of transforming a multi-ethnic empire into several nation-states was clearly on display on this day, and settlement patterns of different ethnic groups did not provide easy instruction on how to proceed. 
We are reminded of previous comments from the old Council of Ten all the way back in February, where it was declared that if the Allies followed ethnic lines when making their new states, the state structure in Europe will begin to mirror the spots on a leopard's skin. The reality was that no simple solution existed, and there was bound to be disaffected or abandoned minority parties somewhere. There was no way to make everyone happy. Though the exercise in reaching a satisfactory solution appeared futile, someone had to do it, and the Council of Four evidently was content to pass the Austrian book onto the Council of Foreign Ministers. They had had more than enough of that headache by this point. As the Council of Foreign Ministers talked, at 4pm that day the Council of Four met once more. In this later meeting, discussion escalated quickly from hypothesising what might happen if the Germans refused to sign the treaty, to pondering how many troops would be needed to occupy Berlin. Lloyd George expressed his concern, which had been communicated to him by his generals, that every month American divisions returned home. This brought back up the old chestnut of military power and leverage which had obsessed the Allies in February, whereby it was confirmed that the longer the conference went on, the weaker in military power the Allies would become, and thus the more stubborn the Germans might become. Wilson noted that, At present, the United States were shipping 300,000 men a month homewards. Lloyd George speculated then, As to the number of troops required for the occupation of Berlin, These were possibilities that ought not to be excluded from purview. And the possibility that the Allies might not be equipped to carry out the threat had worried his generals. If they could arrive at a number, then they could then maintain that number until the time came to send them home. Clemenceau believed that six divisions would be enough for an invasion of Berlin. Lloyd George thought, to this, it would be necessary to add the occupation of the lines of communication. He asked the distance, however, from Berlin to the Rhine and to the sea. Evidently, the Prime Minister wanted to cover all of his bases. After a few minutes to ponder the possibilities, Lloyd George then said that he would like the military representatives at Versailles specifically to consider what forces would be required for the occupation of Berlin. It was unnecessary for the Council to commit itself to a decision because it asked for this information. In my view, there was a good deal to be said for the occupation of Berlin if Germany refused to sign the treaty. It would be the outward and visible sign of smashing the Junkers. They would never be convinced otherwise. I feel sure of this after hearing Brockdorf Ranzo's speech. The big three then rounded in on the Junkers, the Prussian military caste of landlords and commanders, whom the three leaders imagined had led all of Germany astray. Simple solutions, such as Germans ridding themselves of the Junkers, were the logical next step in this very reductionist debate, and Wilson duly fulfilled the role by exclaiming, The hope rested on the remainder of Germany ridding themselves of the Junkers. Apart from Brockdorf Ranzo, the other German delegates looked like reasonable men. Lloyd George pointed out that, Nonetheless, they had allowed the Junker to take the lead. They could not free themselves from the sense of servitude to the Junkers. Next, it was time to round on Brockdorf Ranzau some more, and once again, it was convenient to blame a single figure for the actions of many, because this meant that the solution appeared far easier. The self-delusion continued, as President Wilson stated that he thought that Mr. Lloyd George's theory was correct that the insolent parts of Brockdorf Ranzau's speech had been his own, and the reasonable parts supplied by the other delegates. Lloyd George added to this impression when he pointed out that there was no cohesion or unity of thought in the document. Clemenceau interjected with the suggestion that Marshal Foch should be invited to the Council to give his views as to the amount of force required for the occupation of Berlin the next morning. Lloyd George suggested that Marshal Foch should be asked to consider whether the Poles ought to make any advance on Berlin. As quickly as they launched into this incendiary scenario, Wilson changed the debate towards Russia, of all things, where, he said, the United States faced something of a crossroads. Admiral Alexander Kolchak, in the course of his advance out of Siberia since mid-April, had made great progress and could well be en route to Moscow. 
Yet, as of now, the United States did not recognise his government, even while the British and French did. Thus, Wilson was left with the choice of withdrawing or increasing America's military presence and supporting Kolchak. There was the added complication of the Japanese, who had caused great anxiety for Wilson by moving up to 70,000 soldiers into Siberia in the previous year. Wilson expressed his view that the proper policy was to clear out of Russia and leave it to the Russians to fight it out amongst themselves. It had to be admitted that Wilson had never done that though, and his intervention in Russia flew in the face of his repeated pronouncements on self-determination and neutrality in the Russian Civil War. Strategic concerns trumped these ideas, but Wilson evidently felt that a decision would have to be made soon. Lloyd George suggested that Nikolai Tchaikovsky, the representative of another party in the Russian Civil War, be talked with the next day for the Allies to get a handle on the Russian situation before any hasty moves were made. Lloyd George then produced a handy map to indicate how far Kolchak's forces had advanced, which made a great impression, and which compelled the French and American leaders to agree to receive Tchaikovsky the following day, Saturday the 10th of May, at noon. Next, attention switched to the saga of the Austrian and Hungarian treaties, which had been given extensive attention in the Council of Foreign Ministers the previous day. This discussion was then postponed, and the Big Three looked at disposing of German submarines for a few moments, then reparations payable by the Central Powers, and finally Lloyd George noted on a message he had received from an ambassador in Berlin, which revolved around discussion of the following issue that when the German delegates made communications to the Allies, German journalists would telegraph them to Germany, where efforts would be made to influence public opinion throughout the world in favour of the German point of view. Following this note, notwithstanding its truth, the meeting then adjourned. Was there a danger that the Germans might be trying to influence public opinion throughout the world? Certainly, in the long run, the greatest damage arguably to have been done to the reputation of the Treaty of Versailles was inflicted in the form of an own goal by John Maynard Keynes. Not John Maynard Keynes, whose name I pronounced incorrectly before, so thanks to my listeners for pointing that out. I'm doing my best here. But John Maynard Keynes' book, The Economic Consequences of the Peace, had laid the blame for the injustice at the Allies' feet and it became a self-fulfilling prophecy once Adolf Hitler, invoking the injustices of the Treaty of Versailles, dismantled that treaty and launched his infamous bid for revenge. Notwithstanding the accuracy or logic of Keynes's argument, it could not be denied that only a few days after news of the treaty's terms had been revealed, the Germans were already showing themselves wholly in opposition. It was a sense of outrage which would continue until, arguably, the ultimate destruction of Germany and the abolition of Prussia 25 years later. Initially, though, anger and resentment towards the Allies for creating this treaty was political ammunition far too valuable for the Germans to ignore. Of greatest offence to the German delegates was the so-called Wargeld Clause in Article 231, which, as we've learned, was no such thing. The purpose of the article was not to place all blame for Germany on igniting the Great War, but to establish the legal basis for reparations by placing the responsibility for causing that damage on Germany's shoulders. There was a difference, in other words, and this difference was important because it reminds us how important the reparations issue was to the Allies at this point, and how critical its legal defensibility was believed to be in Allied minds. It was also important because, apparently, the Allies had not anticipated that it would be open to misinterpretation. The German people did not will the war and would never have undertaken a war of aggression, exclaimed Ulrich von brockdorf rantzau in a lengthy memorandum to the Allied governments on the 13th of May. For the next month at least, the German delegates and their government worked in earnest to create counter-proposals to this treaty and to combat the impression that Germany should have to foot the bill. This, insisted many Germans, was directly in contradiction to the 14 points. Even though this was true, technically, the Allies simply dug in their heels, with Lloyd George stating in his memoirs that I could not accept the German point of view without giving away our whole case for entering the war, while Wilson added to this that It is enough to reply that we don't believe a word of what the German government says. 
We have already seen the Big Three debate how to occupy Berlin in the event that the Germans refused to sign. In the month of May, they felt forced to dig in and defend the decisions which had been arrived at. Although, of course, full and comprehensive knowledge of the treaty would not have been theirs at any point. Only once the treaty was published and in the public domain did the Big Three actually have the time to read it. There had been no time in the weeks before, or in the final hours, when the last terms were settled and it had been sent to the printers. Still, though, even with the sense of urgency no longer present, the Big Three did not read the treaty in full. Yet they defended it nonetheless because this treaty was the product of many months of work. This defence continued throughout May, and it was only on the 29th of that month when the Germans put forward their counter-proposals that the nerves of the Big Three, or more specifically Lloyd George, began to fray. Of all the Allied delegations, it seems that Lloyd George's was the most divided and vocal about the treaty. In a meeting in early June, as we'll see, Dominion and cabinet leaders would urge Lloyd George to renegotiate certain points within the treaty and for the next fortnight, the first two weeks of June that is, to the utter disgust of George Clemenceau and Woodrow Wilson, Lloyd George would attempt to reopen several clauses and cases which they had already closed. As we'll see when our narrative reaches that point in about a month's time, this had the effect of destroying the already precarious balancing act which the Allies had negotiated. Knowing this helps us to make sense of the processes of this final phase of the Paris Peace Conference, and it explains why the conference didn't end a few days later in mid-May with Germany's straightforward acceptance of the Allied terms. It also helps us to bear in mind that, at least for the next three weeks of May 1919, the Allies were as united as they would ever be on the treaty's terms. On the morning of the 10th of May, there opened the first of five meetings with a visit from Marshal Ferdinand Foch, who, unlike in our delegation game timeline, was here only a mere marshal and a commander of Allied forces, and not the President Marshal he has become in our alternative history. The mission of Foch was a familiar one, though. He was here to argue for the particular strategy which would be followed in the event that the Germans refused to sign the treaty. Having discussed the question the previous day, and having decided to invite Foch to pick his brains, Foch's presence was not a surprise, but it must have seemed somewhat surreal to hear him speak of the resumption of the war with Germany, which Clemenceau insisted was a possibility, not probability. It is worth detailing what Foch said, so that we can get a feeling for what the Allies planned to do if this peace conference essentially went belly up. Foch noted, It had been established that, for the whole month of May, at least 40 divisions with 5 cavalry divisions would be available to operate on the front of the Rhine. I required 8 days warning to put them in a state to march. The reason for this was that many men were on furlough and many officers were away on commission or leave. Everything was prepared, and at the end of eight days, the army would be ready to march. If and when the moment came to intervene, the action to be taken will be organised according to the objects aimed at. If it was a case of a regular German government refusing to sign, it would be necessary to strike at the centre of that government. For example, Weimar and Berlin. It might be, however, that the situation would be less clear, and that the German government might say that it could not decide or that it required a plebiscite. Still, if the resistance was that of a regular government at Berlin or Weimar, this resistance must be broken. The shorter roads should be followed with the maximum possible forces. The army would start from its bases at Cologne and Mayence. Advancing from this baseline towards Weimar and Berlin, the army would penetrate a zone very favourable to its advance, as its flanks would rest to the north on the River Lip and to the south on the River Main. This zone was so advantageous for the advance that the enemy might be expected to capitulate before the armies reached their objective. Further, by advancing from the Rhine along the valley of the Ruhr, the result would be achieved of considerably reducing the enemy's financial resources. Advancing from the Rhine by the valley of the Main, the armies of the Allied and Associated Powers would cut Germany off from Bavaria and in addition would be in a position to join hands with the Czechoslovaks. This was a perfectly feasible and not dangerous operation and might achieve results without bringing the operations to a conclusion. These lines of advance would take the Allied armies into the heart of the German government. In reply to Monsieur Clemenceau, I envisage action 
by the checks which would be combined. This was an extensive operation involving a splitting of German forces, a direct drive to their capitals, the use of overwhelming force, pincer movements and cooperation from external powers like the Czechs. It was clear that Foch had been planning this thrust for some time. One imagines that he may have advocated its adoption in the final weeks of the war, but was superseded by the pursuit of an armistice instead. There was some debate over the question of a surprise campaign, since Lloyd George believed that the eight days of preparation was too long and would give the Germans too much notice. Lloyd George then suggested that it might be an advantage to have some military demonstration at an early stage. The Germans, Lloyd George insisted, were now making up their minds. Possibly they thought that the Allied and Associated Powers would not march. Clemenceau confirmed this, saying... That was exactly what the Germans were saying. They believed the French army incapable of marching and that the United States army was going home. The Allies then fulminated over their response in the course of this meeting. Foch argued that nothing could be done in any case until the 22nd of May, when the two-week deadline for accepting the terms would expire. Thus, Foch indicated that he would return to discuss this plan on the 18th of May. By then it would hopefully be clear whether the venture would be needed or not. However, following urging from each of the big three, Foch indicated that he would engage in some form of military manoeuvres to demonstrate Allied military unity and strength to the Germans. Lloyd George made a point of noting that it would take some time for the Germans to know that Marshal Foch was there, since the German mind was not a quick one. Consequently, Monday the 12th of May was, in Lloyd George's view, too late for Marshal Foch's start. Instead, Foch should move out and be ready to host such a demonstration by tomorrow morning, on a Sunday, to send a clear message to the Germans now. The meeting then adjourned. The next meeting was held only a few minutes later, but was dominated still by the question of the Germans, minus the person of Foch this time round. The reply which the German delegation had given to the treaty was communicated here, and it makes for fascinating reading. Remember, in the situation they were in, the Germans had two weeks to accept the treaty, and they were not actually entitled to suggest substantial changes, only to make recommendations or request clarification on certain points. In this, though, the Allies overestimated the German capacity for accepting when they were beaten, after their president had welcomed German soldiers back home with the claim, No one has defeated you. How could Germans then accept this humiliating peace? which only the most desperate of nations would be willing to sign for. Thus, the key disconnect between reality and emotion grew, and the myths of stabbed in the back and an unjust peace grew with it. As Brockdorf Ransau communicated in his message to the Allies, The German peace delegation has finished the first perusal of the peace conditions which have been handed over to them. They have had to realise that on essential points, the basis of the peace of right agreed upon between the belligerents has been abandoned. They were not prepared to find that the promise, explicitly given to the German people and the whole of mankind, is in this way to be rendered illusory. The draft of the treaty contains several demands which no nation could endure. Moreover, our experts hold that many of them could not possibly be carried out. The German peace delegation will substantiate these statements in detail and transmit to the Allied and Associated Governments their observations and their material continuously. How should the Allies respond to this appeal to Allied justice, couched in reason, logic and emotion? Well, according to Wilson, as we have seen, it was now time to dig in your heels. Wilson's proposed reply read, In reply to the general objections which the German plenipotentiaries present to the provisions of the treaty, it is only necessary to remind the German plenipotentiaries that we have formulated the terms of the treaty with constant thought of the principles upon which the armistice and the negotiations for peace were proposed. We can admit no discussion of our right to insist upon the terms of the peace substantially as stated. We can consider only such practical suggestions as the German plenipotentiaries may have to present. Wilson's stance was backed unanimously by the rest of those present in the room, and it was indicated that the matter would be discussed later in the day. The meeting then adjourned. 
When they reassembled a quarter of an hour later, the item on the agenda was the visit from Nikolai Tchaikovsky. The Russian delegate was introduced, and interestingly, when Wilson opened by declaring, The Council was very anxious to have his views as to the best policy to be pursued towards Russia, and that All those present were friends of Russia and anxious to help her and would be glad of any suggestions Mr. Tchaikovsky might have to offer. The overwhelmed Russian replied that This was a large order. Indeed, it is too large an order for us to delve into now, so we're going to return to the Russian situation in a dedicated episode at the end of May, if that's okay with you. The Tchaikovsky presentation, thus dominating the Council of Four meeting at noon, we can move on to the afternoon meetings, which were guaranteed to be equally fractious. It was in the afternoon of the 10th of May that House met briefly with the Italian Foreign Minister Sidney Sanino, and it compelled House to summarise conveniently in his diary the latest in the saga of disagreement over the future of the Adriatic question among the Allies. House wrote, Speaking of Sanino reminds me to say that the President is still stubborn on the Adriatic question. Our experts, who at one time were irreconcilable to anything being done with Fiume except to give it to the Yugoslavs, now have a plan by which it is to be placed in the hands of the League of Nations for a period of years, and at such time as the League shall indicate, a plebiscite shall be held to determine whether it shall become Yugoslav or Italian. If it goes Italian, then the Italians are to build a port for the Yugoslavs below Fiume, and yet the President will not listen to it. In other words, he is willing to concede less to Italy than the Yugoslavs. If this question is not settled amicably, it may easily lead not only to the disruption of the peace conference, but to another war. If the Italians are not satisfied, they will insist upon the Treaty of London, and France and England have already notified us that they will keep their faith. In this event, unless we accede to it, the peace conference will be shattered. If we expected other issues to potentially trump the Italian concern, then it was evident Italy had not ceased to be a problem, simply because her representatives had left and then returned to Paris. It would not be that easy to solve Italy, and House was loud, in his diary at least, in the opinion that the fault for this divide among the Allies should lie with the President, writing, One of the great defects of the President's character is his prejudice and self-will. He gives way when sufficient pressure is brought, but the trouble is, he is always running the risk of getting into an inextricable situation. The manner in which he has antagonised the Republicans in Congress is an instance of this, He has steadily built up a fire there, which is now beginning to scorch him, and it will become worse and worse as his term wanes. It is all so useless, and it has hampered him in the exercise of his public work, and will probably hamper him in the exercise of the treaty provisions. There was sufficient evidence, House believed, to lay these accusations at the President's feet, where once House had seemed to worship the ground that Wilson had walked on. House was not the only one to lose faith in old friends, though. Following a stormy meeting of the Council of Foreign Ministers that afternoon on Saturday the 10th of May, where the British and Italian Foreign Ministers were at each other's throats, British Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour turned to Harold Nicholson at one point and said, I had resigned myself to being unable ever to return to Germany or Austria. It distresses me to feel that henceforth Italy will also be barred against me. The meetings which followed at 3 and 4pm were not particularly satisfactory or warm, though Greek Premier Venizelos did hammer out the final details of his proposed naval landing near Smyrna. At that Council of Four meeting at 4pm, where the Italians were notably absent, the Big Three committed themselves to supporting the planned landing with naval and military support. All this was done in the belief that, first, the Italians would inform the Turks about it, so it would have to be kept secret from them, and second, that intervention in Smyrna was essential to protect the ethnic Greeks and Christians who lived in that divided city. Acting ostensibly to prevent a massacre, the Allied decisions on policy towards Greece, much like those taken for Russia an hour later, guaranteed the defeat of the nominal Allied interests in the region and the massacre of that party's supporters by the Turks and the Bolsheviks, respectively. They represented another unflattering instance where the Allies, coming as close as they ever would to playing God, set in motion 
terrible consequences which would have to be borne by those populations on the ground. Much like it had been during the war, the decisions of faraway statesmen led millions to slaughter. Yet in this instance, it was not so much the soldier, but the civilian, be it of Greece or of Russia, that would have to pay the price. The Allies, as was their wont, proclaimed on the one hand that the issue was impossible to solve, owing to its inherent divisions and difficulties, only in the next breath to act unilaterally to defend their interests and prop up their alternative regimes. Next time, we'll watch what happened to one of these regimes, the temporary Greek regime and the Anatolian city of Smyrna, which rose into the Hellenic sky, only to fall like Icarus right back down to earth with a bloody and terrible crash. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 